2011. Um, these remaining claims are not medical malpractice claims because there was no provision of medical care and the remaining defendants are not health care providers under the statute. The statute defines a medical malpractice action as an action for damages arising out of the performance of medical care by a health care provider or it can be against a hospital, nursing home, or adult care home for breach of administrative or corporate duties like negligent retention, negligent supervision, and the claims against the hospital also have to arise out of the same facts and circumstances as those against the individual medical provider. So you can't have a medical malpractice claim against the hospital and not have a medical malpractice claim against an individual. Now, these claims are not medical malpractice claims because Raleigh Orthopedic as negligent retention be against the doctor and that always just against the hospital that retained the doctor. If, if, yes, a negligent retention claim would be against a hospital. It can be against someone who is supervising the doctor. But in this case, because we no longer have that, but, but, it's, but does negligent super retention, is that a medical malpractice claim? You just said that was under the statute. Yes, under the statute it is. And that would be one that would just would not be against both because because I thought you said you can't have any of the, it's got to also be against both of them and, you, and would, is the employee ever guilty of or liable for negligent retention of himself I wouldn't think so correct you, you can't have a medical a negligent retention claim against the hospital unless you have an underlying medical malpractice claim against the physician okay finish your question so okay, the okay. Raleigh orthopedic clinic as a physician practice is not a health care provider under the statute. The statute lists several persons that can be considered health care providers. They certainly are not a person. And it also lists those three entities, hospital, um, nursing home, and adult care home. When we look at statutory construction, we look at the words of the statute. And if those words are unambiguous, we give them their plain and ordinary meaning. And hospital, physician, I'm sorry, hospital, nursing home, and adult care home. Those certainly are not what a, a physician practice is. And also when we look at- Is a physician practice liable for the negligence of their physicians? Under, under this statute, no. Because under this statute, a physician practice can't be held liable for medical malpractice. Because they aren't, they aren't a medical provider and they aren't one of these three um, entities. I'm just saying, it could be any person who is legally responsible for the negligence of a person described in subdivision A. Right. And I would argue that particular section, there's no case law on point that defines what that is. But that is clearly a doctor who is legally responsible for a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner, or even a resident physician. But that particular, you know. It does say person. It does. It does. It does. use the word person. Okay. It does. Um, and even, even if you if you accept the argument that it could apply to Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic, because we don't have any more me medical malpractice claims, we have abandoned our negligent retention, negligent supervision claims. So, so, so those, any issues regarding those causes of action um, aren't applicable here. So, so again, when we're looking at whether or not Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic as a practice um, falls under the statute, there's also another doctrine, and that's laid out in the cases of Savage Visa Lent and Pat Morvey Chapel Hill, and please forgive my Latin, but the, the term is unius es clerosio alterius, and that simply means when an, an express mention of one excludes the other. But simply put, when a statute includes a list, and in this case a list of entities, if you're not in, on the list, you're excluded. Now the, those cases hold that that doctrine doesn't always apply, it only applies when that list, and in this case these entities, they have to have some kind of thread of commonality. And these certainly do. All of these entities provide inpatient care. Hospitals, nursing homes, adult care homes. Physician practices do not. Yeah, let me back up because sure. I'm just making sure I understand. So, so you're making two separate arguments. One, these folks, Raleigh Orthopedic is not a health care provider, so this statute doesn't apply. Or even if they are, the claims you're making aren't due to the provision of medical services, it's more this uh, fraud claim, not telling them how bad this doctor is. is that, so it's either or, I mean, it's the, they're Correct. the alternative, okay? Correct. You make the, an alternative. So even if we disagree with here, you're saying, even if they are a healthcare provider, it's not a medical malpractice claim. 
Correct. Okay, I got right. you. And just so I'm, I'm, I'm clear, it's fraud about not telling them back when she went in for the surgery to begin with and also when she went for the follow-up or just the follow-up? I want to make it really clear. Um, the actions that that these defendants are being held liable for, those actions began as soon as Dr. Mankin came to Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic. Right after 2001, they began to receive information that, um, you know, regarding Dr. Mankin and his practice of medicine. And so the fraud against the Connells began the moment that she stepped in the clinic door because had the Connells had the information that the defendants had, they would have never allowed their daughter to treat with, with Dr. Mankin. And that brings us back to damages. And, and it can, I can understand how it's confusing because there was a medical malpractice claim where we did allege damages related to two negligent surgeries. Those no, those no longer is, exist. Our damages here, in order to, to prevail, we don't have to present evidence that those surgeries were negligent. We don't even have to, pre, we don't even have to present evidence that Dr. Mankin was an incompetent surgeon. All we have to prove is that had the Connells had the information that the defendants had, they would have not allowed her da their daughter to treat with him. And so what are their damages? In regard to Brittany, she feels betrayed by Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic. She feels humiliated and duped by this practice. Um, she feels scammed. She, feels, she struggles to trust physician practices and other physicians. In regards to her parents, they're angry and embarrassed that What's they- What's the damage? So if Dr. Macon, let's assume he did a great job, but they, but they didn't, I mean, let's say he was a bad doctor with a bad history, but he did a great job, but they didn't tell him. Okay, but so don't you have to prove that he did a bad job or did something bad? So, so your question is, let, let's assume that he had... Let's assume he did nothing wrong. What, what are your client's damages? Because you're saying they're angry. So what? I mean, they're angry. Why is that damage? Their damage is because the, the parents and the patient have the right to be treated by a competent surgeon and, more importantly, not to have the practice withhold information, material information, that would have guided their decision in regards to who they sought care from. And it's also important to note, in, in regards to constructive fraud and breach of fiduciary duty, nominal damages are sufficient. Um, and that's the case of Chisholm v. Campania, the Supreme Court case. We don't have to prove actual damage. The nominal damages are sufficient there. And so, Your Honors, that brings me so to... So you're saying even if Mankin did a great job and they would have gotten the exact same result had they gone to another doctor, they're still entitled to nominal damages because they were entitled to know that this doctor had all these issues and they might have gone to another doctor. Yes, because had they known that other parents were making claims that their daughters underwent fraudulent surgeries, that he lied about indications, that, and th this is one um, that I think is important, Dr. Vaughn at Raleigh Orthopedic knew and he, he told Dr. Mankin in 07 or 08, half of Raleigh thinks you're always wrong. That type of information, had those parents had that information, they would not have treated with Dr. Mankin. Are they entitled to the damages based on the fact that he did a bad job or the allegation that he did a bad job? No, they're entitled to damage by the fact that, that Raleigh Orthopedic withheld the information and they treated with him. So their damages begin the first time, that, that first clinic visit, when they pay for that visit with Dr. Mankin. So they're entitled to the nominal damages for that? At, at least, at, 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 at minimum. But, but we cannot consider as part of their damages the harm that maybe Dr. Macon caused in the surgeries. Just the fact that they had to sit there, sit in the same room with this doctor and... You know. Correct, because unfortunately those, those would arise out of 90-21.11, damages arising from the performance of medical care. And these defendants did not provide any medical care to Brittany, so she will not be able to recover for the damages that she suffered as a result of those surgeries. Even from these non-healthcare providers? I'm, I'm not sure, I'm, are, are you asking, yes, she can still recover from these non-health, she cannot recover from these non-healthcare providers damages that she suffered from Dr. Mankin, because that would be, 
he. I mean, you can't recover from Dr. Mankin. I'm just wondering what you're saying, but you can't even recover from these people. Because that, that's, is that not a national damage that arises out of the fact that they didn't disclose all this stuff? I'm just. No, if, 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 if we were to say that they could recover from these, from the Raleigh Orthopedic defendants, the damages that Dr. Mankin inflicted, that would be some type of negligent retention, negligent supervision claim, and would be medical malpractice claims. And that, that's the defendant's argument. What we're arguing is, unfortunately, because we lost those claims because of the statute of repose, that we are, we are limited to, to these damages against these defendants in regards to their breach of fiduciary duty, constructive fraud, and fraud. Um, Your Honor, in, in looking at um, the second reason that the, the, the trial court erred in granting summary judgment, as I said before, even if you, you all were to hold that the statute applies and Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic is a healthcare provider or these individual defendants were, these are still not medical malpractice claims. The defendants can't point to one case where our courts, as a blanket statement, say any claim for breach of fiduciary, breach of fiduciary duty, constructive fraud, or fraud are across the board medical malpractice claims. To the contrary, we have many cases where that medical providers are held liable for actions other than medical malpractice, even within the setting of the provision of medical care. And, you know, we, we've given a few, you know, failure to provide a cane to a patient who's a fall risk is ordinary negligence. Failure to supervise a disabled teenager after he's discharged but before his parents are, are able to pick him up is ordinary negligence. But even in the more complex causes of actions beyond ordinary negligence, the court holds that health care providers can be held liable for things like breach of fiduciary duty, constructive fraud, and fraud. And the three cases I want to really point out are the, the Watts cases and the Barrett case. In the Watts case, the plaintiff alleges that she went to, after she had a car wreck, she went to the ER, the ER physician examined her, she had spinal fractures. Not only did that doctor fail to diagnose her with those, but every subsequent doctor that she went to fraudulently concealed those spinal fractures. And so what the court does is it goes to the Court of Appeals, they look at the fraudulent concealment claim only. They affirm some of those claims, they um, reverse others. Um, but what's important about that case at the Court of Appeals is Judge Wells wrote a, a dissenting opinion and said all of these claims should be dismissed because all these claims are medical malpractice claims. When it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court dec declines to adopt Judge Wells' opinion. They hold that not that these are medical malpractice claims, but that the plaintiff simply failed to produce sufficient evidence to prove this fraudulent concealment claim. And it's important to note that this case, the crux of this case, is about reading x-ray images. And so when the court says you can still have a fraudulent concealment claim when most of the facts are regarding reviewing x-ray images, surely in the Connell's case, when we're talking about withholding information from a patient, shouldn't be considered medical malpractice claim. The companion case in Watts, same plaintiff, now she's suing her therapist for again fraudulently concealing those spinal fractures and for an unauthorized disclosure of her medical records to these other defendants. Now the court does hold that the, um, the unauthorized disclosure of the medical records is medical malpractice and in that case she was providing those records to the other defendants for continuity of care um, for that plaintiff and so those were medical malpractice. But again, Judge Wells in his dissent writes all of these claims should be dismissed because they're medical malpractice claims and again the Supreme Court has a second opportunity to, to say this case that involves the reading of x-ray images are medical malpractice claims and they did not. The Barrett case is, it is an unpublished opinion, but it's persuasive here. It's a 2013 Court of Appeals case, and I think it's important because it, it looks at, at the statute that we're looking at here, 90-21.11. This case involves uh, a patient in a nursing home who was dropped when he's moved from a bed to a shower chair. 
and the court holds that that is ordinary negligence. And then the court also looks at the claim against the nursing home and says, well, if the claim against the medical provider is ordinary negligence, then the claim against the hospital is ordinary negligence. And that's what we, we are arguing here, is that if our claims against, um, if our claims under 90, I'm sorry, if our claims against these defendants are ordinary negligence, the claims against the practice are as well. I did want to point out one case that the, that the defendants point out and um, distinguish that a bit. That's the case of Goss v. Solstice. In that case, a child was being treated in an inpatient rehabilitation center. She was over-medicated, and the parents made a claim for the over-medication of the child, plus a failure to notify them of that over-medication and some subsequent communications after the fact. And what the court held was while those, the lack of communication was not the direct provision of medical care. It did stem out of the provision of medical care, so those would be medical malpractice claims. And what the defendants in this case argue is, well, if those types of communications are considered medical malpractice claims, these communications in this case should be considered medical malpractice claims. However, in the Goss case, the communications were subsequent to the, the acts that that make up the medical malpractice claims. The defendants can't point to any case where we have a medical malpractice claim and then the court then allows us to go back in time to actions that in this case the Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic defendants took and somehow say that those are derivative of that medical malpractice claim that happened um, further down the road. I would also like to briefly discuss um, some of the some of the genuine issues of material fact that remain as to all of our claims. Um, to survive summary judgment, we don't have to prove that all the facts are true. We just have to print sufficient evidence to support our allegations. The, and the trial court may not resolve issues of fact. And when we look at the, the claims of breach of fiduciary duty, constructive fraud and fraud, all those claims build on each other. And in regards to fiduciary relationship, our case law holds that the patient-physician relationship is a, is a fiduciary relationship and that doctor owes that patient a duty. In their depositions, Dr. Vaughn admits that Raleigh Orthopedic had a duty to all its patients to, to protect them from wrongdoing from anyone in the practice. Dr. Andrew admitted that he, that the, he does have a prep professional obligation to investigate problems with other partners. And Dr. Vaughn also testified that if you're a patient of Dr. Mankin, you're a patient of the whole practice, you're, you're my patient. So they admitted that they had a duty to Brittany and her family. The North Carolina Medical Board also lays out that doctors have an obligation to act when they are presented or they, have, they are made aware of an incompetent physician. And so when we look more specifically at the fraud claim, I'm gonna look, look at that one in, in particular. Rarely is summary judgment, judgment appro appropriate in a fraud claim because the state of mind of the accused must be proven by circumstantial evidence. And, and, the, and the trial court, and, you know, it's up to the jury to decide issues of credibility. And here when we look at a, the fraudulent misrepresentation or the concealment of material fact, the defendants would like to point out, well, we need specialized skill and training to determine whether or not these material facts are true or not, whether he is an incompetent surgeon or a physician. However, half of the information that Raleigh Orthopedic received was from lay people. We start with Chris Martin, who's, who was the football coach at Broughton High School, and Dr. Andrew was the team coach. They were on the sidelines at the Friday night football games. Dr. Mankin did a surgery on Mr. Martin's daughter, and, doc, and Mr. Martin said, Dr. Andrew, that, that surgery was fraudulent, and he's holding, he is not shining a very good light on Raleigh Orthopedic. That is, that is information from a lay person that anyone can understand and that doesn't require any kind of specialized skill. But if somebody tells you something, you know, and 
in 2020 and you just disagree and it doesn't match your feelings about it, but then say in 2023 you start to see things that, okay, now taking that into account that I heard three years ago and now taking this into account, at that point, isn't that where it becomes more problematic? I mean, somebody could have been dismissive of somebody's complaint years ago and then you don't have fraud in between 2020 and 23. Um, about that person's activities. You might, starting in, in 23, if you've come to the realization that you think the person's incompetent and, and not a good doctor, um, and you're still promoting them, but between 2020 and 2023, just because you've heard things doesn't mean that you're acting fraudulent if you don't necessarily believe that to be the case. And it seems like they stayed in practice with this gentleman for a number of years. Um, so just because somebody tells you something doesn't mean that you're buying it. Right, it, and I agree with you. One one comment or one opinion of of, of a person saying, you know, I don't think this this individual was a, a competent doctor, or you know, and it goes beyond that that he was uh, perpetrating fraud. But when you look to, at the totality of the evidence, you know, the first time they heard it in you know in er, in the early two thousands from Dr. Cottle, perhaps they could dismiss that. But when they hear it over and over and over again. At that point, it's not some disgruntled employee or it's not some parent who's dissatisfied with the result. They have many, many online reviews and, and these, these aren't just, uh, you know, he, you know, we had a poor result, but it's his acts are criminal, unnecessary surgeries. You know, these are, these are go far and beyond any type of violation of the standard of care. And when you look at the record and you see, and, and the, the court in Huggins v. Wagner talks about this, when you look at intent to deceive, it says, you know, you can look at the totality of the evidence. And, and one of the factors the court talked about was a broad pattern of deceit. And here you have a broad pattern. You have years of them receiving this information from many different sources, lay people, and medical professionals that they had a serious problem on their hands and they still disregarded it. And, and so, so in looking at that, um, you know, again, a lot of this information was from lay people. Had the Coddles had this information, they wouldn't have allowed their daughter to treat. And we talked about what Dr. What Dr. Vaughn in 2008 so Dr. Vaughn had clearly heard lots of things of Dr. Mankin, you know, that there were issues with Dr. Mankin because he says, Dr. Mankin, half of Raleigh always thinks you're wrong. Now, if Terry and Cynthia Cottle knew, hey, this doctor you're about to go to, half of Raleigh thinks he's always wrong. None of us would allow our daughter to treat with him. So, and so they it, had a duty to tell him. They had, they had a duty to do tell and at the least the duty not to disclose it I mean not to withhold it and so why know, didn't that fall under maybe he asked I'm just gonna find the statute I wish I had the whole statute but mm -hmm. 21.11.2 that she cite on, or the, the part yeah, that she cite on page 12 B says a breach of any duty corporate duty or administrative duty including but not limited to so there's a duty to because of your status of being the the provider, the, 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 being ROC, but you have a duty because of your status as that to, to disclose the fact that this doctor is a bad doctor. Yeah. Well, so the why first, does that not fall under, under B? The first reason is because Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic is not a hospital, nursing home, or adult care home. Do you have a definition statutorily of hospital? Yes, and um, in, it, it's not in this, um, it, it's not in 90, but in 131E-76, the hospital licensure statute, it, it defines hospital as, among other things, a continuous nursing care. It, it provides continuous nursing care primarily to inpatients. And it says the term does not include any outpatient department, including a portion of a hospital operated as an outpatient department on or off the hospital's campus. Does the beginning of that statute or that article say that these definitions apply in this article or these? It, it does. It, it does apply to that article. However, 90 doesn't specifically define hospital. However, when we look at statutory construction, 
in the plain, I can't, I can't imagine that any, anybody would argue that a, physici a physician practice is a hospital or nursing home or adult care home. And that goes back to um, when, when I was referencing the Savage v. Zalint case. It's when we have a list, unless it says including it and not limiting to, like the other statute does, we can presume that this is um, inclusive and excludes others who, who are not listed in there. I hope I answered your question, Judge Dillon. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and again, when we're looking at the intent to deceive, and we're, well, I, I see I'm almost out of time. Um, I, I just want to add, you know, in, in regards to punitives, um, the defendant does mention punitives and that we can't, you know, we can't have punitives against um, a, a, a corporation for the acts of its agents. However, the, the statute clearly does say that we can hold a, a corporation liable if its officers, directors, or managers participate or condone in it. And the way that Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic was set up, they're a corporation with shareholders, all the partners are shareholders and members of the board of directors, therefore they're, they're directors, and all of these individual defendants were directors. Um, and is that I'll, exception listed out in your complaint? I'm sorry, can you ask? Is, is, or is that exception that you just read through listed out in your complaint, the facts of condoning and, and that? I, I understand we could probably interpret them, but have you listed it that way at any point in the complaint? Did, in, in regards to the corporate... Um, yes, ma'am. Um, I believe that we did. I, I, think, we, I think we said that um, Raleigh Peter Clinic... Um, This is your claim for punitive damages that we're showing. Oh, in regards to punitive damages? Yeah, the, the exception to the exception. Did, did you lay out those facts? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I thought I had my complaint in front of me. Oh, I, I, I found it. Record 96, 176. Okay. All right. Okay. We still have five minutes because you were answering a question. So we'll. Okay. So. All right. Well, I will respectfully um, leave the remainder of my argument for rebuttal. That's perfect. Napoli. Please the court, uh, John Manier with Yates, McClam and Wire. I'm here for the appellees and uh, summary judgment in our view was properly granted in all respects because this is a medical malpractice action period. Um, in the common negligence actions, we all know about the reasonable person standard and there is a whole statutory scheme in chapter 90 that gives special protection to healthcare providers. And it's important to note that the, the rules and the tort reform we've seen in recent years do all slant toward making it more difficult for plaintiffs to bring medical malpractice lawsuits. Included in there is Rule 9J, the rule about pre-suit certification by an expert. Uh, the, the, the definition of negligence in a malpractice case has to do with a very specific statutory standard of care. Expert witnesses are required. They need expert witnesses to come in, give testimony as to what the standards are for a similarly trained healthcare provider in a similar or same community at the time period. And in addition is in 1-15, we have the statute of repose that we're here about, the four-year statute of repose. It protects healthcare providers and says they can't sue more than four years after the last act giving rise to the cause of action, period. It doesn't matter when they find out about the claim. It doesn't matter when they contact a lawyer. The last act here is 2012. They didn't sue until 2017. So it's law of the case at this point, and the plaintiff concedes that they did not comply with the statute of repose. So if this is a medical malpractice action, 
uh, it fails, and that's what the trial court found. So it, the, what we're talking about here hinges on the definition of medical malpractice action. Uh, Ms. Booker said in her argument that the plaintiff has abandoned the claim for negligent retention and negligent supervision. That, as Your Honor pointed out, would only be against Rock, the entity, the corporate or the PA, um, and they've abandoned that. Uh, you can't have negligent retention of an employee against a co-employee. Uh, that's all in the brief. And Ms. Booker also state, stated that there is no, there were no negligent surgeries, or they're, they're not claiming that Dr. Mankin's surgeries themselves were negligent. Um, that is the end of the case and the end of the analysis. As Your Honor pointed out, that if Dr. Mankin did a, did a perfect surgery, uh, and, and he's out of the case now, he was, uh, he got summary judgment, and there was no appeal taken from that order. So the agent is now out, and under basic agency law, you have to prove that the agent committed a wrong to, to produce any collateral claim for somebody allowing the agent to act. The, the core of this lawsuit is that Dr. Mankin, who came to Rock in 2001 and did these surgeries in 2010 and 2012, the plaintiff is saying somebody should have gotten in in between. Somebody should have prevented these surgeries from happening. That is their claim. But how does that make any sense? No, uh, one of the claims she said she made is, and I'm just trying to say, is this, is this even, a, I don't know if it's a cause of action or not, but she says she's entitled to nominal damages. It's just the mere fact that ROC had the duty just to tell him this doctor's a bad doctor, has all these issues against him, whether he does a good job or not. I have the right to know that as any parent that's going to bring my kid to the hospital, to the doctors, you need to tell me that. Even if he does a perfect job, if I find out later that he had all these issues, boy, that's going to just cause me anguish of what could have happened. I mean, so, so you had a duty to tell me that. That's fraud. I'm not claiming any damage for anything that he actually did. I'm just claiming damages because you didn't tell me this. Um, and I was, in, and you had a duty to tell me that, so it's not asking for any damages for any physical or whatever due to any surgery. It's just the fact that you didn't tell me something that you had a duty to tell me. Now, I don't know what your damages are for that. I mean, I know you can sue for breach of contract even if you don't prove any damages because if you, you, you get nominal damages for that. Um, do you get it for fraud if you don't prove any actual damages? If, if you lie about something that I, that I think is material or don't tell me something that you should have told me, even if I don't prove any underlying damage. That's what, that's what I heard her say, that they're not talking about any physical damage that might have been caused by the surgery. So I, I, I want to address that part. All right, thank you. you. Had a, did your client have a, assume your client had a duty to tell these parents, this doctor is a bad doctor, and they didn't, and that's fraud, because they would have gone to another doctor. Even though there's no damage, direct damage flowing from that, is that an actionable claim for which they could at least get nominal damages? So the, if I may take it in, in this order, I have a two-part answer to that, Your Honor. And the first, first part is procedural, and the second part is substantive. Okay. You're asking a substantive question as to is there such a cause of action? Is there such a claim? But uh, part one of the answer is that procedurally, in terms of the statute of repose, even if that claim is a valid claim, it's too late. Why? Wow. It's not a medical... Fraud doesn't arise until, until it's, it's discoverable. So if they found out in 2015, that was the earliest they could have found reasonably, I don't know, there may be a jury question, that this doctor was a bad doctor. And they, they finally realized that I was lied to. Fraud doesn't even start then. And I don't know if the statute of repose, at least the four-year dealing with medical malpractice doesn't apply, because this is not a medical, this is just somebody lying. I could go, it could be any, it could be about a lawyer. I have, you told me. You told me this lawyer was a good lawyer. I had no idea they had all these complaints against them. I mean, and you had a duty to tell me. The lawyer did a fine job, but I found out later, and boy, it caused me anguish because what it could have turned out wrong. I don't know. I don't know if that's actionable. Am I entitled to at least nominal damages because I was reliant? You, you should have just, you should have told me that. Okay. That's uh, what I'm talking. That's what I'm. That's what she's. I heard her arguing. And all right. And if I may, I, and I, I do intend to answer your honor's that's question. Fine. But uh, if, if, you, if you look at 90-21112A, we have the definition of a medical malpractice action. 
and that statute reads that a medical malpractice action is very broad. It includes a civil action for damages for personal injury or death arising out of the furnishing or failure to furnish professional services in the performance of medical, dental, and other health care by a health care provider. Here it's the surgery. So it's damages arising. I'm not claiming any damage for surgery. It's, it's like if you and I have a contract and you breach it, I may have no damages, but the mere fact that you breach it, I'm entitled to sue for nominal damages. And that's what she's saying, which I think is she's trying to do that to get in the door to get punitive damages. I don't know. So she's not claiming any damages, at least that's what I thought I heard her say, for any of these personal injuries. She's just saying, I'm entitled to at least nominal damages because y'all had a duty to tell me about how bad this doctor was, and you didn't. And that's, that's the first we've heard of this non-physical claim that is just, I have a right to know. So, so she's putting it under the rubric of fraud. Fraud is a, a, a representation made intentionally with an intent to deceive that is relied upon by the plaintiff and relied upon to the detriment by yeah, that's the plaintiff. That's true. It has to be to the detriments. That's true. Has all those elements. And th that is. If that didn't exist before the August 5th, 2016 visit, looking at the facts alleged, um, paragraph 68 to 72, where she goes back, isn't that fraud unrelated to the furnishing of these previous services? I'm sorry, could you? She, she's, she's alleging that she went and saw um, was it Dr. Oh, yes. Nichols, who then referred her to another doctor there in the practice. Um, and then eventually she goes on to get this second opinion from Dr. Richardson who realizes all these problems. I mean, they're if that was done with intent, what does that have to do at all with the provision of the previous surgery? If it's intent to deceive her to not go to another practice, to deceive her to sit there in pain for longer, even one minute of additional pain if it's done with deception, I don't see how that's not actionable fraud. You don't see how it's not? How, how it's not. If, if the intent was to deceive her into thinking that there's nothing wrong, the, and she doesn't need anything else. At that point, so the surgeries in 2010 and 2012, this, uh, this care of Dr. Michaels and Dr. Barker occurred in 2016. Nobody alleges they did a thing wrong medically. What they're alleging is, wait a minute, you had a right to act in effect as her lawyer. And when she came in, you had a duty to give her legal advice and to tell her, look, there is, you have a claim here of some kind. North Carolina has never recognized anything like that. Substantively, they did not uh, plead that. And so the, the whole idea of a medical malpractice claim or a fraud claim is there has to be damages. And the damage uh, here, is in the, if you read the complaint and throughout the lawsuit, is all tied up in the surgery uh, of Dr. Mankin. And the surgeries worked in 2010 and 2012. So in 2016, and Your Honor did suggest that maybe the maybe pain continued to, for a longer period of time. But in 20, I'm looking at, at and I just want to kind of clarify, just make sure we're talking about the same thing and all on the same page. Looking at page 10 of the appellant's brief, it says neither doctor nor Rock informed Brittany that the stabilization screws in her hip were ineffective. This was in 2016. That spinal fusion was flawed, and then all the stuff about resigning, or you're talking about being a lawyer. Aren't these, these first two, that she wasn't told about the stabilization screws in her hip were ineffective and the spinal fusion was flawed, um, regardless of if they had a duty to disclose everything about them, isn't that actionable fraud if they're misleading her? Uh, first of all, only if it causes damages. And there is no allegation here that any such thing caused any physical injury or any damages of any kind. Second of all, there's no evidence that Dr. Michaels or Dr. Barker knew of uh, anything that Dr. Mankin 
years earlier had done wrong. They weren't present in 2010 and 2012. What they have is one x-ray in 2016 that they say, well, that they, sh they should have gone back and that's fraud. They, they do have not provided uh, evidence that in 2016 there was some standard of care or that, or that Dr. Michaels or Dr. Barker, there's nothing approaching the idea that they knew that there had been uh, wrongful conduct in 2010 and that, nor that they uh, intentionally withheld it from the patient, nor that the patient relied to their detriment and suffered an injury as a result. There's no injury uh, allegation of any injury in 2016. What they started out saying is that in 2010 and 2012, he did bad surgeries. That's why he's not here. That's why he uh, surrendered his North Carolina license and moved to Texas, because there were some surgeries that were, uh, there were a number of lawsuits. But the, the case started out being about a straightforward medical malpractice case about those surgeries. And after the statute of repose was raised, and after the, the court ruled as a matter of law that they had filed outside the statute of repose, which they now acknowledge, then they, uh, I think if you look in the complaint, you will see allegations that this is a medical malpractice action. And there is an allegation that Rock, I believe, is a is a health care provider. And it was a straightforward health uh, medical malpractice case until the statute of repose happened and the, and the court ruled that the suit was untimely. And now they're saying, we never meant anything about medical malpractice. This is, this is just a, a fraud case. So it, it's defendant's contention that plaintiffs are not seeking damages for these facts alleged at paragraph 68 to 72 in the amended complaint, that these are just merely offered as additional evidence of their pre-existing intent to deceive. I'm not sure why they made that allegation, uh, but, but they have never made any connection to any physical injury in the complaint or otherwise. Um, they're just, they just, the, I think that had to do with trying to save the statute of limitations, so they sued Dr. Michaels and Dr. Barker, again, whose care has not been challenged even by plaintiff's experts. Nobody said they did anything wrong in terms of their care. She returned, the patient returned four years later and went back and was treated. And at the time there was no problem, but, but the lawyers alleged, aha, in 2016, you didn't tell us about Dr. Mankin and how bad he was. And this whole argument is assuming he was terrible, he was terrible, he was terrible. There were some issues with surgeries, but um, it, it all, uh, this idea of fraud, um, there are a number of data points that, that people did get uh, hearsay from other healthcare providers about uh, Dr. Mankin. There was another, D Dr. Caudill, who had left Rock. He was previously at Rock. The, and to, if I can give a little, uh, paint a little bit of a picture of, of, the, of the place, there are 20 or so adult orthopedists there was a Dr. Robert Caudill, who was a pediatric orthopedist. He left, and then Dr. Mankin came in in 2001 as the sole pediatric orthopedist. There's very little demand for pediatric orthopedics, and the training is very different. They do different fellowships. So the adult orthopedists at Rock are not qualified to comment on the standards of care for pediatric orthopedists. So what they do is they hire somebody like Dr. Mankin in 2001, who they were thrilled to have. He went to Harvard, he was trained at Harvard. His father was a granddaddy, uh, wrote the book on, on orthopedics. And so, so what they do is they bring someone in from a program like Harvard and they let them practice. They're trained at that point. They've been through the fellowship, not only orthopedic training for years, but then an additional two years of pediatric training. So when he comes, it, it, it's foolhardy to think that these adult orthopedists should be looking over his shoulder somehow. He knows much more than they do about, about pediatric orthopedics, which is what he was doing. This patient was 14 years old. So what we have here, that puts in a little context when you have uh, 
uh, locker room talk between doctors and somebody says, you know, this, this Dr. Mankin, his indications for surgery uh, are, are no good. I don't agree with him. Th that is a far cry from Rock being on notice that Dr. Mankin is somehow intentionally performing unnecessary surgeries, which is what this whole thing was really about until the statute of repose kicked in. But so, so now um, the, the, the argument remains a little confusing but it, from the plaintiff but it, to me, but it still, it still is a case where they have to prove the following. Number one, that there were a number of data points of information that were given to Rock before the 2010 and 2012 surgeries. Number two, they would need an expert testimony to talk about a clinic like this and establish what that means. When you take the data points, well, what, what is a, a practice like Rock and all these adult orthopedists, what are they supposed to do about the pediatric orthopedists where it's not their specialty? Well, there are standards about that, and, but, but the plaintiff provided zero expert evidence as to what the standard of care was. And so should they get an outside reviewer to look at Dr. Mankin's cases, a number of his surgeries? Should they do peer review, which is in fact was done, and that's in the record? And eventually Dr. Mankin did leave. But back to your honor's question about this fraud and this idea that they had a right to know, even if the surgery is perfect, they have a civil action, cause of action, by not being told about the data points, uh, not being told about the concerns that some had. Well, that, that is a matter of standard of care. That is a matter for experts. A lay jury cannot, cannot say, wow, it sounds to me like when they're on notice, to take it a step further, what Dr. Mankin was doing was spine surgery and this surgery on the SI joint in the hip, between the hip and the spine. And so if somebody at Rock gets information that Dr. Mankin's, he's bad. He has a, uh, he is more aggressive about spine surgery than he ought to be. Well, is that something that happens all the time in the medical world? Or is that something that is actionable where Rock has a duty. A lay person on the jury doesn't know that. They need expert testimony. That's why it's a medical malpractice action. And they would have to prove through ex expert testimony what, what Rock should have done, uh, what conclusion they should have reached as far as Dr. Mankin. If Rock decided that Dr. Mankin uh, was substandard in some way, was, was he redeemable? Is there some program they should have gone through? The, the plaintiff, without the benefit of any expert testimony, is just having a lawyer coming to this court and saying that, well, Rock should have known this guy was so bad that they should have stopped all surgeries from him altogether. That is something that a, a lay, lay person on a jury can't decide that for themselves. That, that is why Chapter 90 exists. That's why we have in uh, Chapter 90-2111, uh, the definitions, and 2112 has the, the substantive standard. But again, uh, and if I may uh, mention this Hardy's case, this, all of this is moot because Dr. Mankin is not here. He has been adjudicated innocent, if you will, in this case. And every claim, if you look at the Hardy's case uh, that is in the defendant's materials, it's got a, a, a battery by an employee, and they sue Hardee's as well. And then they dismiss voluntarily the employee, refile against the employee, dismiss again, and the court says that that is an adjudication on the merits against the employee, and as a consequence, you can't sue the principal anymore either. Once the claim against the agent goes away, the claim against the principal goes away. So all the claims against Dr. Mankin, Ms. Booker just admitted that there's no negligence in the surgery anymore in this lawsuit. And so once the agent is free and clear, the principal is free and clear. You, you, you can't, and the reason for that is because of the indemnity law. 
It wouldn't be fair to the principal if the, if the agent against whom the principal would have an indemnity claim is gone and adjudicated innocent as a matter of law, the principle is free and clear as well. And so uh, there are at least two reasons. Uh, one is this is a medical malpractice action filed too late. Number two, with the agent now having been adjudicated innocent, there is no more claim against anyone else for failing to intervene and prevent the agent from acting. Because as a matter of law, the agent is innocent. So how can somebody be guilty for failing to prevent an innocent agent from acting. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, maybe I'm just thinking about it wrong. I'm just thinking in a pure contract, whatever, even if this wasn't medical, are they alleging an intentional tort? You, you come in an intentional tort, fraud. You didn't disclose something you should have. And even though I can't prove actual damages, I'm entitled to nominal damages for that intentional tort. Okay. I mean, like if I buy a house and the agent tells me something, doesn't tell me something intentionally and misrepresents something, but I can't prove actual damages because I got a great deal for it. Am I still entitled to some nominal damage against that agent for not disclosing something or fraudulently lying to me about something? No. Uh, one of the elements. Got to be to the detriment. One of the elements of damages is reliance to the detriment of the purchaser, in your example. And uh, that's what fraud is. Fraud is very strict. And by the way, they never pled it with particularity in the complaint. And that's in our brief. All you have to do is look at the complaint and you'd say, what kind of fraud are they talking about? And, and to further uh, drill down on your honor's question, uh, uh, Judge Dillon, is the, th this idea, um, I'm sorry, uh, lost my train of thought, but I'm trying to get to this idea of uh, a, a, somebody who just didn't know something that they, they might have otherwise known even when there's a perfect surgery. I, I, I guess the, the main point is this is a civil action. It's about damages. And when there are no damages suffered, there, there is no cause of action. That's one of the elements, uh, certainly, of a fraud claim. Um, I mean, they allege that, that your client made false representations concerning the prior acts, uh, that they were competent, which I don't know. I mean, they do allege that, but at the summary judgment hearing under the Rumelot case, uh, once we came forward with multiple depositions and affidavits uh, negating the plaintiff's claims, plaintiff had the affirmative duty to present at the hearing and have included in the record on appeal uh, a prima facie case of uh, medical malpractice, of fraud, and it, and it just isn't here. Um, so, so your honor is reading from the complaint, but, but, but it has to be the record at the trial court during the summary judgment hearing. They can't rely on the pleadings. They can't rely on the Um, I would ask the court to uh, also focus on the Foster case that's in the defendant's brief, and that involves a, uh, uh, a sexual uh, abuse by a pastor, a non-medical person who is being supervised by a physician. And the, uh, in that case, the court makes clear that that is a medical malpractice claim against the supervising physician. So anything that is in the nature of supervision, you know, unless there were, oh, okay, I, I regained my, my train of thought, sorry. Um, but in terms of fraud, what they're, what they're suggesting here is nobody is saying that any of my clients, any of the appellees, uh, made an affirmative representation to the patient. No, they're not even arguing that. What they're trying to do is, in a backwards way, say, well, there was a lot of information available and, it, and they had a duty to disclose it. But, but, but where is that in the law? Yes, it's true that in some scenarios, if you're selling a house and there's some uh, hidden defect, um, uh, there, there may be a fraud, but it still goes through the five elements of 
affirmative, intentional representation, intention, intended to, so, so what they're doing, that even in the absence of any representation, nobody's saying that Dr. Vaughn, Defendant Vaughn, Defendant Barker, that any of these people made a representation to the patient that uh, Dr. Mankin was okay or don't worry, he'll be safe. They're not saying that. They're taking really what is a negligence claim uh, and, and they're, they're saying, gosh, a reasonable healthcare provider would make sure, would have done something. But, but it's not a, a representation. It's not a, a fraud situation. These other doctors, they, they never met uh, Brittany Cottle. And so uh, the, it's a long way from fraud. And in addition, even, even if it's fraud, uh, it is still under the rubric of medical malpractice because under 90-2111-2A, it says a medical malpractice action. Um, it, it, and the whole statute in terms of Chapter 90 is drafted broadly. So when the healthcare provider term is defined, it includes oste osteopathy, podiatry, uh, chiropractic, and it's very broad uh, uh, in its scope. But in, in the substance, it says a civil action for damages for personal injury or death, all it has to be to be a malpractice case is arising out of the furnishing or failure to furnish professional services. And here that professional service was the surgery. The damages have to arise out of the furnishing of the professional services. So. The only way this it's also got to be for personal damages, not for nominal damages, maybe. But I'm, I'm just. But there, but there still has to be some sort of damages suffered by exactly. the plaintiff, yeah. and in this scenario, uh, we're talking about personal injury or death arising out of the furnishing of professional services. That's what a malpractice case is, and her damages, if any arose out of the surgeries. It's as simple as that. That is the end of the analysis. And the, everything else is just an attempt to run around the statute of repose. It's a malpractice case and it needs to be, we need to have, uh, or we would respectfully request that the order be affirmed because it's a malpractice case and the statute of repose applies. That's reason number one. And reason number two is with Dr. Mankin, the agent out of the case, uh, under the Hardy's uh, case and, and other cases that are not cited, the, the principal cannot be liable. You, you, nobody can be liable for the wrong of the bad actor unless you sue the bad actor too. And, and now that the bad actor has been adjudicated okay, or the alleged bad actor, he's been adjudicated to be okay, you can't sue anybody else. Um, be glad to answer any questions. Thank you for your argument. Thank you, Your Honors. And you have your three minutes. Three minutes. In, thank you. In, in regards to nominal damages, the, the court in Chisholm v. Campania, that's a Supreme Court decision, held that for breach of fiduciary duty and constructive fraud, we don't have to prove actual damages, that nominal damages are sufficient. I couldn't find a case on point in regards to fraud and nominal damages, but when you look at the North Carolina pattern jury instructions, they do lay out that nominal damages are sufficient for fraud. But we also have to keep in mind in a personal injury claim, damages for pain and suffering are physical pain and mental suffering. The mental suffering, they, those are actual damages. And also, every time, you know, we, we said that had the Cottles known what the defendants knew, they would have never consented to treatment. Every clinic visit she had, every physical therapy appointment, every x-ray, there were costs associated there. While minimal compared, you know, when the family talks about it, that's minimal compared to the emotional damage that they suffered. Um, in regards to Barker and Mickles, we do allege that, that Barker made an affirmative misrepresentation. Um, Dr., uh, Mr. Cottle asked him, do you see anything wrong in these records here? And Dr. Barker says no. But, but Dr. Dr. Michael's concealment to me was more egregious. He sat on the peer review committee with doc, uh, regarding Dr. Um, Mankin. He knew everything it was about Dr. Mankin. And that, that family came in there six years later 
and they don't tell tell them anything. Did he review this 2012 x-ray that Dr. Richardson later says um, clearly show the two of the screws were clearly not fixed? Did he, was that reviewed in 2016? Um, in, in trying to remember the deposition testimony, I would, I'm afraid to say yes or no because I can't recall independently um, whether or not he, he said he had. In, are you seeking an action in addition to all the stuff before August of 2016? Are you also pursuing after August 16 as part of the action or are those facts just in there for flavor as to the underlying, the overall fraud? And we have, we have actionable claims against Barker and Michaels for, for their independent acts. Yes, we are. And what was their damage? What's the damage flowing from them because the screws were already messed up? So what? Again, those would just be more emotional damages. And, you know, it's, it's important to part out, to point out that, you know, one of the biggest reasons that um, the, the plaintiffs missed the statute of repose is because this information was withheld from, from them for so long. And so, Your Honor, with that, we would ask that, um, considering all of our arguments and our brief, that the court reverse the trial court's um, order. Thank you for your arguments. Thank you. We will take these under advisement.